0: The more debt you have, the higher stock and real estate prices go. And China's doing it for a very specific reason. They want to control everything. And if their central bank has a digital currency, that means they'll know everything that their citizens are doing, everything they're spending
1: money on. Welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Richard Vag, who previously served as Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania... Presently, Richard is the managing partner of Gabriel Investments, an early-stage venture capital company, and is the author of the recent book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis, which is today's topic on our podcast. Thank you so much, Richard Vague, for joining us. It's a privilege to be here. In your book, The Paradox of Debt, you discuss the process of money creation through bank lending. You write... Suppose a bank makes a $100,000 loan. It does not get that money by nabbing someone else's deposits and moving them over to a new borrower's account, nor does it go down to the vault with a sack and gather up bills to place in the borrower's account. It creates the deposit with a computer entry that adds new money into the borrower's account. Later in your book, you mentioned that from 1972 to 2007, over 90% of new money in the U.S. was created through bank loans. Can you explain in simple terms how money is created by the bank lending? And then also explain where that remaining 10% of money supply came from.
0: Yeah, well, this gets discussed a lot, but we don't have to get. We can go into the financial records of any country which are normally maintained by the central bank. In the United States case, it's obviously the Federal Reserve that produces any number of reports. So you can go and actually track this. Most money is created new by bank lending. What we often hear is the money supply, we also hear it referred to as M2 a lot, which is one of the definitions of the money supply, is a measure of deposits. So when you hear somebody talk about the money supply, they're mainly just talking about deposits. And deposits are something that are at banks. That's really kind of the definition of a bank, is an institution authorized to accept and create deposits. Well, just as you you read from the book, if you were to walk down to a bank and ask for a loan to, you know, take a vacation with, They And if you ask for $5,000, you walk out of the bank with an obligation to pay $5,000, but $5,000 credited to your checking account. That's new. That's an increase in the amount of money that exists at that bank and in the world. That's where money comes from, and it long has, you know, for at least a couple hundred years. Now, the other... Ten percent and it fluctuates from the year to year. We actually have a index, online index for the book, and you can actually look at this year by year by year if you want to. So but money is also created by the Federal Reserve. And it does that in a very similar way. If the Federal Reserve, if you Jesse, own a treasury bond and you were a US citizen and living in, you know, New York, and they bought a $5,000 bond from you, they would pay you by crediting your bank account with a deposit. They would own the security that you would now have a bank deposit. Well, that's also an increase in deposits, and that's referred to as QE. You know, there's all sorts of names for it these days, but it's monetary operation, quantitative easing, whatever you want to call it, That's a way the Fed creates money. In some years, recently, it's been
1: a big number. But over time, it's been between like 10 and 30% annually. If they're basically just creating debt out of money, what is fractional banking then? Well,
0: actually, different people mean slightly different things by fractional reserves. But in a sense, what we're talking about is, in essence, what most people mean when they talk about fractional reserves, which is... The amount of reserves that the bank has to keep for your deposits is actually a very small amount. Most banks, it's well less than 10%, you know, maybe 2 3%. That's this creation of money uh, out of lending. And the folks that oppose it, you know, as a harmful or profligate behavior, you know, want to
1: eliminate,
0: basically, the bank's ability to create money.
1: Richard. You write in your book, Paradox of Debt, we should take a moment to revisit why the idea of printing money and for the listening audience, the printing money is in air quotes, should be retired from the contemporary economics lexicon. Richard, can you explain why this term should be retired and what is the actual process that's going on when people use this euphemism of printing money?
0: Well, it gets used all the time. You know, if you Google it, you'll see that there's dozens or hundreds of times every single day that it's used. And if you're listening to talk radio or watching cable news or whatever, you're sure to hear the term many, many times every day. Well, once upon a time, we did pred money. The, the, in the United States, after 1787, after the Constitution was created, you know, we we printed a lot of money in the Revolutionary War, as you may recall, but that was before the Constitution. So, from the Constitution forward, <clears throat> the U.S. didn't even have a currency until 1861, 1862, which was the American Civil War, and we needed money. To pay for that war. And so we started literally going out to a printing company and getting what were called greenbacks derisively printed. And the government took those over to the treasury. And when they had to pay for uniforms or bullets or anything like that, they took that newly printed currency and paid that. That doesn't happen in 2023. We don't print currency to do that. What the Fed does is it borrows. And that's a very different thing than printing money out of nothing. Anytime the government does something, it is associated with a a bond, a treasury bond that the government issues. Or, as we just described, the Fed can create deposits. But when it does so, it incurs debt. The Fed has a a debt obligation that's created when it credits your, your account with money. So, all money nowadays is created by debt. All money is created by debt. No money, well, you know, there may be some tiny little pocket somewhere where this occurs. No money gets done by somebody going out printing money that's not associated with debt and pay now third world countries do that a lot zimbabwe does that united states doesn't do it so it's really misleading in my opinion because there's a very big difference between money that's created that's associated with debt and money that's going out back and printed on a printing machine
1: is printing money and quantitative easing the same thing no not even close because I think when, when people hear the word printing money, I think that they assume that means quantitative easing. Uh, can you ex- me, so explain the difference, please?
0: Well, I'll just uh, repeat a little bit of what I just said. And you, you've you gotten to the heart of the problem here. People say quantitative, oh, my God, we're printing more money. Quantitative easing is, let let's just take a John Doe. Let's say John Doe has a million-dollar treasury bond in his little old safe deposit box. And the Federal Reserve wants to increase the amount of deposits in the system. That's the easing part that we're talking about here. They want to make things easier. They want to ease the supply. So they want to increase the amount of deposits. Well, an easy way for them to ease things is to buy that million dollar treasury bond from John Doe and they do that by making a deposit into John Doe's checking account or you know yeah his checking account. So John Doe has exactly the same net worth after this happens that he had before. If he was worth a million dollars before he's still worth a million dollars. We have created you know increased net worth in the system The form of his wealth is now a checking account rather than a treasury bond. That's quantitative easing. It's designed to make more money available in the system. And and by the way, that practice goes back a long time. There's another term for it if you go back to the 1800s when the Bank of England did that to try to prevent crises in that system. It's called being the lender of last resort. L-O-L-R. And that's a really crucial concept in banking.
1: I noticed when, when you had that stat of the 90%, you used the starting point year, 1972. And in 1971, the U.S. went off the gold standard. So was that able to do some of these, say, quantitative easing when the U.S. was on the gold standard? Or how does the gold standard factor into yeah, any it, of this? It, it didn't, the, the way it worked didn't really change
0: because of the presence or absence of the gold standard. And like I said, if you go to the appendix that's online for our book, you can, I think we have the um, money creation, quantitative easing and bank lending chart schedule all all the way back to 1945, so you get to see that. What happened in 1971 is the U.S. was trying desperately to defend the gold standard, and it wasn't working. In 1960, There were 20,000 metric tons of gold in the United States. Much of this at Fort Knox, just like in a James Bond movie. But the market price of gold, and we were trying to defend what was, I think, about a $36 an ounce price of gold. But you could sell gold in other parts of the world for 50, 80, 100, 120 bucks. So everybody was coming in and cashing in their dollar bills for gold in the United States since we were stubbornly trying to hold on to that standard. So they'd buy, they'd buy it for $36 an take it to wherever, England or anywhere else they wanted to and sell it for, you know, $100. And we tried to stem that tide by raising interest rates, by putting capital... You know, all sorts of little tricks. None of them really worked. So that 20,000 metric tons worth of gold had gone down to 10,000 metric tons. It had been cut in half. And it was good. It was clear it was going to be zero in a couple of years. It wasn't like if we'd have been there, we could have made a different decision. We We, we had no choice, you know. And so they took us off the gold standard and... Guess what? The world survived. But central bank operations really didn't work different before and after that. The the one difference was banks and the central bank tended to have more gold on their balance sheet than they do now.
1: So, Richard, I got another quote from your book. I like to do quotes that way I don't uh, fumble it. So in your book, Paradox of Debt, you write, Financial crises can be foreseen and prevented once we start paying attention to the factor at the heart of them. Excessive lending and debt. In large part, we have not learned the dangers of over-lending for a simple reason. Bank, bankers, and other lenders make money through growing loans. That is what garners promotions. Industry accolades, high stock prices, and large bonuses. Rapid lending growth brings good times and increased wealth to the cadre of actors who make the decision to lend more. Ambition leads to excess. A bank's desire to grow loans is no different than a car company's desire to sell more cars. End of quote. What are some key metrics or indicators to spot a looming financial crisis?
0: The easiest one is to take loans, and it's really private sector loans, not government sector loans, and divide it into GDP so that you can really compare it apples to apples through time. When you do that, loan growth is growing at about the same rate as GDP. You kind of don't have to worry. But if loans are growing a lot faster than GDP, well, then you have a very powerful clue that there's a lot of excess being built in the system. And the best single example of this is the good old United States of America. In 2002, the mortgage loans were $5 trillion dollars by 2007, they were $10 trillion. $10 trillion. They doubled in less than five years. A blind man could have seen it. Except the Fed didn't see it because the Fed doesn't look at loans, shockingly enough. So really, all you have to do is look at big moves in the ratio of lending categories to GDP, and you'll know that the risk of overcapacity is occurring. Now, I'm I'm happy to report that there aren't big such pockets in the U.S. right now. There's little pockets of problems. There aren't big ones. In China, they have a massive problem in this regard because their private sector loans are off the hook.
1: There's so many different metrics, Richard. One of the interesting metrics I noticed in your book was you talked about during the 2008 Great Recession, I think it was the occupancy, or was it the home home ownership rate? Was it was that the metric? Yeah. Where the, it was... well, the
0: one we like the best is the inventory of unsold homes.
1: And that's the one. Yeah. Thank you, Richard.
0: So, you know, right now, for example, a normal if we just use the historical average of the last twenty, thirty, forty years, the if we should have about two million unsold homes today. We only have about 880,000 unsold homes. So we actually have way less homes than we need to satisfy normal commerce. Now, high interest rates have something to do with that, obviously, and I don't think that's really going to be rectified until it pulls back. In 2006, we had 4 million unsold homes, twice as many as we should add. So even when we pulled back, and even when the Fed pulled rates back, you weren't going to see a lot of new homes because we already had a couple of million too many. And until that was absorbed, which took five plus years, you weren't going to see the real estate industry come back.
1: So you're saying right now it's only 800000 to does Airbnb... And some of these short-term rentals play a role in that, or is it regulation, or what's the reason for such a small amount right
0: now? Well, it's a good question. I think one of the things that happened was the building industry just got scared after the 08 crisis and has really never gotten its courage back. And that courage really comes in the form of building speculative homes. In boom times, developers you know, in 05, 06... They were in places like Las Vegas, Phoenix, and others. They were buying thousand acre plots and building several thousand homes on spec, which means they had no buyers because things were so hot they knew they would sell quickly. Well, that's a risk because it's like musical chairs. Once the music stops, you're stuck with a thousand empty homes that you own. And the building industry's never really recovered from that. We have never really built back up. We were getting there, and then you know the the thing that set us back, ironically, was COVID. Who would have guessed this? I certainly would never have guessed this. But in late 2020 and really through most of 2021, we had this massive housing boom because people had decided they wanted to buy a home away from population centers. So in a place like Pennsylvania, where I live, people were buying homes in small towns across the state of Pennsylvania because they kind of figured COVID would be a permanent thing and that living off in a less densely populated area would be better. Well, guess what? COVID kind of got solved, and people kind of got tired of long commutes, and things kind of got back to normal. So the b- housing booms kind of dropped back off.
1: So you think a lot of those people then are selling that country home and moving back to the city then?
0: Yep, absolutely. And of course, there are no buyers.
1: Right. (laughs) So Richard, in your chapter where you're discussing the economics of the pandemic, you write, restoring and sustaining growth in the future will also be more challenging due to two secular long-term trends. The first is slower population growth. It is easier to grow GDP if a country's population growth is accelerating. The second is near-record levels of private debt in relation to U.S. aggregate income. It is harder to grow debt rapidly if an economy is already overleveraged, end of quote. Are there specific policy adjustments or innovations you believe are crucial for addressing these long-term trends and sustaining economic growth in the face of demographic shifts and high debt levels?
0: Well, let's take those one at a time. I think the demographic shift, I'm not sure that anybody has succeeded in having a policy to turn that around. We're way better off in the United States on that front than Germany and China and Spain and a lot of places that are absolutely saying a population collapse. In Spain, this stat is a year or two old, but there were 35% less females ages 0 to 5, than ages 30 to 35. Well, you're never going to recover from a population collapse. There's simply not enough young women such that when they reach childbearing age, they'll be able to sustain population growth. Now, different people have different reactions to that. Some people say, well, that's great. We've got way too much population anyway. Well, that may or may not be true, but I can tell you one thing. You can't sustain robust economic growth if your population is declining. It's fairly linear. It'll contract. And China is facing that. We're not facing that as much primarily because of our immigrant population, but we're not growing at the rate we were in the 50s and 60s from a population standpoint. And China has gotten rid of its one-child rule. Now, I think Putin was paying incentives and bonuses to women to have more children. Yeah, I think things have been tried, but I think this is a cultural shift that's going to be very difficult to turn around. The second thing, though, the high debt levels, I think there are what I would call bite-sized opportunities to improve things. The level of private sector debt in the United States has more than doubled in the last 40 years. The debt service ratio this is how much of your free disposable income uh, you have to use to pay down debt and interest in principal, has gone from let's call it 15% uh, couple, a couple of generations ago to almost 30% now if you have to use more of your income to service debt you have less of your income to spend on going out to debtor and going on vacation and putting in some home improvement, adding a bedroom to your house, things like that. So it's inevitable in that circumstance that the more leveraged you are, the slower overall economic growth will be. So if that's the case, and I don't want to over-answer your question, but if that's the case, then finding ways to help people face down their debt challenges is a productive thing. Student loans is a area that's been much discussed. In the book, we talk about letting folks do community service as a way to earn credit towards the early retirement of their student debt. There's other ideas, but helping folks on debt is something we need to be thinking about.
1: Do you agree with like Peter Zihan's take then that there's going to be no eminent American demise? You'll see a lot of pundits out there that talk about China and Some of these other countries that may be emerging i saw on your youtube channel you had a a video on china's not being on the upward trajectory anymore in the mainstream news they always kind of talk about china but they're collapsing demographics and then you mentioned they have massive debt and and other issues and we hear about the american dollar losing its dominance do you think that's all kind of not necessarily too accurate.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of uh, folks out there that try to say scary things about the U.S. economy, and I see those. Uh, It's not like we don't have our problems. We always have them, and we always will. We talk about them in the book, but relative to the other major countries of the world, U.S. is in pretty good shape. We have had a magic wand, there's a few things I would change. China is in the worst shape of the major economies in the world. They've got more problems than you can shake a stick at, declining population, over situation, which you mentioned both those, and much more. And Peter Zion is a guy who is out there saying he, he goes so far as to say he thinks China won't survive at it its current form for more than ten years. And I'm not sure I'm that bold. But but I you know, I I don't envy uh, Xi she in running that country. It's a it's it's a beast.
1: Inflation has been a hot topic recently a lot of people say that the u.s had too much money during the pandemic which caused inflation you argue and say that it was the ukraine war and having sanctions on russia and russia is one of the largest producers of weed and and petroleum then people talk about quantitative easing and interest rates in terms of inflation how do all these interact to cause inflation and what is the primary cause there is every Inflation event different? Most inflation events are pretty similar. We've only had nine in
0: U.S. history dating all the way back to the 1700s. So it's pretty easy to see them. For major developed countries, they're few and far between. And they almost always relate to some problem with supply. In the 70s, OPEC, Saudi Arabia, had a stranglehold on the oil supply and and oil prices went from about $3 to $4 a barrel in 1973 to $40 a barrel in 1979. That was the Yom Kippur War and the Iranian Revolution. That's tenfold increase in the price of oil. For today, oil's what, 80 That would be as if oil went to $800 a barrel right now. That's how shocking that period was, and that's what brought... Our seventies inflation. And by the way, the thing that solved that inflation was if we had had a policy, and this relates to Richard Nixon in nineteen seventy-one. Remember he was trying to solve inflation with price controls, which sort of never worked. Well, they had they had regulated the price of oil domestically in the United States at the wellhead. So you couldn't say it was it was a complicated structure, but basically you couldn't sell oil for more than, you know. a barrel, I think, when the market price was $36 a barrel. So folks in the United States stopped producing oil. And that contributed to the undersupply. And between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, they deregulated the price of oil at the wellhead. Drilling rigs in the United States went from $1,500 in 1977 to $4,500 in in 1982 they tripled i remember i was living in texas by the way it was it was crazy and he, sure enough as soon as enough drilling rig capacity was out there the price of oil collapsed i mean, remember that was spring of 86 it was great for the rest of the country and terrible for texas you know, the price of oil went from over $30 a barrel to $9 a barrel in like 2 or 3 months and inflation ended and you know, that that's the story of inflation that Right now, we're, we're not yet exactly in the same place. But once again, I think between Saudi Arabia and Russia, that's a big component of our inflation. We, we haven't managed to diversify away from oil. It's been 40 years. We're still kind of drinking at the, the oil, you know, the, the, the fountain of oil and still beholden to these folks. And I think that's kind of a shame on us. But between COVID and the undersupply and the war in Ukraine, and, and here's a little bit of irony for you. I think high interest rates, which are supposed to solve inflation, actually contribute to inflation a little bit. High interest rates make things more expensive. On multiple levels, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. And, that has way more to do with it than Fed's monetary operation.
1: The term in the book was supply-depletion inflation. So you would say that most inflation is the supply-depletion inflation.
0: Yeah, and, and most of them, and at least in our industry, most of them have come with major wars. We had inflation in World War One, and World War Two, and the Civil War and what have you, because you know, like all the wheat and corn fields in the country had been turned into battlefields, and guess what? The price of wheat corn go up.
1: Let's talk about growing an economy, Richard. In your book, Paradox of Debt, you say there are only four ways to grow an economy. Increase government spending, increase business spending, increase household spending, or increase net net exports. All of these are powered by debt growth, including increased net exports, as those are financed by debt from the importing country. Is it possible to grow an economy without taking on any debt? Economic growth comes from debt growth by definition. And we have a chart
0: in the book that really maps that for you. If you don't want to grow using your own debt, the only way to do it, as you just read, is by improving your exports or decreasing your imports such that your net trade position improves. Really, one of the only places that I have a high level of concern in the United States is we've got a trade deficit that goes back really to the 1980s. <clears throat> it has been averaging two, three, four percent of GDP here for a while. Well, that means we're buying more of the other guy's stuff than they're buying of our stuff. And one of the ways to remedy that is to make better stuff. We see a lot of ways that that's finally beginning to happen. We did the opposite for two, three decades. Starting in the 70s, we decided we should outsource manufacturing to China and Mexico and everywhere else. And, that really wasn't the smartest thing we've ever done as a country. And that kind of contributed to the problem. Right now, we're beginning to see for a lot of reasons that there's value in what's called onshoring or bringing back manufacturing to the United States. And it should be and often is very high end manufacturing. Let me give you one example that I think is one of the best examples. There are some medical breakthroughs to cure certain types of cancer. And look, this a leukemia is one example of this. They'll go take your T cells, take it out, take it into a manufacturing facility. Now it happens to be an extremely high-tech manufacturing facility. Operates at almost absolute zero. It's ultra-clean environment, and they alter the genetic structure of the T cell grow a couple of billion of the altered cells, reinsert them into your body, and those cells attack the cancer tumors and kill them. And we've seen patients become absolutely cancer-free in a matter of hours or days. Somebody who's been struggling with leukemia for 5 or 10 years and is near death in a week is cancer-free. That's the guy. Well, these are manufacturing facilities. And here in Philly... We're starting to build more and more of them to do this. That's exactly the kind of thing we ought to be doing in this country to bring manufacturing back. I I don't think we're ever going to be competitive making little parasols for mixed drinks. You know, That's not the kind of manufacturing that we really want to focus on. But but if we bring high-tech manufacturing back here, it'll improve our trade balance and bring growth that's not dependent on internal debt.
1: Seems like whenever this topic comes up, inevitably NAFTA and the WTO or World Trade Organization always come up. How does these organizations factor into the offshoring of businesses starting in the 70s going up pretty heavily through the 90s? If you look back on the history of trade in the United States during
0: the 1800s, and that was the time in which we went from being a tiny little country to being... Economic, economically the largest country in the world, the largest economy in the world. I think we became the largest in the world seven, eight, 1880, 1890, when we had not only passed Britain, but also China, which was the world's largest back in the 1800s, by the way. And they weren't industrial, but they had so many people. Even back then, I think there were 400 million people in China. Anyway, we passed them all. We were the most protectionist country in the world at that time. We had tariffs anywhere from up to 40 or 50% on goods. We protected our manufacturers and they grew to become the best in the world. Later in that century, and in the beginning of the 20th century, our advantage was so large that it occurred to us that we ought to become free traders. If you're already the best, Free trade is great because when we started creating these bilateral trading arrangements, at first, a lot of them were with South America. We would import their bananas. They would import our manufactured goods. That was a sweet deal for us. We largely imported agricultural products and we largely exported manufacturing products. And by and large, there was either rough parity in trade or a slight advantage to us. In trade, our wages were very high because manufacturing uh, had the high wages, at least in those days. We ran with that for almost a hundred years, but then we started exporting manufacturing. We used to be the world's top manufacturer, but in the seventies and eighties and nineties and two thousands, bit by bit, we were offshore. So our iPhones are made in China. So you know we lost that manufacturing edge and uh, I, I think that's kind of the story and NAFTA and the WTO were a big part of that because NAFTA and the WTO were really a codification of the very philosophy I described which is we had decided I think in error that we would keep the invention part the design part and we we outsource the road manufacturing part, the boring manufacturing part, that we let low-wage people do then. Well, it turns out that manufacturing is a powerful form of intellectual capital in and of itself. We can't build iPhones even if we want to today, not because of our wage disparity. So we don't have the
1: know-how and the education that funnels into it. Uh, we lost it, and we need to get it back. Do you see that? trend reversing Richard the pandemic kind of made that obvious where we couldn't even get some of the basic essentials PPEs masks things like that massive shortages so is there a trend where we're actually going to be manufacturing more in the US of a? Yes some of the recent legislation helped
0: that out the chips act obviously the chips and science act i think it's called gave subsidies for bringing some of that critical chip manufacturing back to the US it's a steep uphill climb You know, it's not like we can snap our fingers and get it all back. But we're starting to see some of that come back. And I think we'll get more and more back over time as long as we remain committed to it. We could lose our political will on that. But you need legislation, you need subsidies. We did all that back in the 1800s. That's how we got great. You know, people that say that government should stay out of things just basically don't know their history because... The U.S. massively subsidized railroads and telegraphs and canals and all the things that made us the world's powerhouse. It takes it all. You got to have support across the board to regain stature as a powerhouse in manufacturing.
1: One of the major themes of your book, The Paradox of Debt, is the theme of inequality. And I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit from your book. You basically say that money is itself created by debt. As total debt rises, so does household and national wealth. However, this wealth accumulation is largely contingent on others carrying this debt. This dynamic leads to deepening inequality, especially affecting the middle and lower income households. What are the primary factors contributing to rising inequality that are driven by economies of debt?
0: Well, there's a couple of facts you got to consider that most folks just simply don't think about or aren't aware of. One of them is that most household wealth is in the form of two things, real estate and stock. And it's like, you know, 65 or 70 percent, I saw somewhere if you include pensions, it it may be close to 80 percent of household wealth is in the form of stocks and real estate. So that's a profound first thing to realize. The second thing to realize is that the top 10% of the country own most of the stocks on real estate. The most recent stat I saw is the top 10% own 65% of all the stocks on real estate in the country. The bottom 60%, that's 60%. That's the middle class and the lower income groups only own 14% of all the stocks in real estate. So that's the second thing to know. And then the third thing to know, and again, this is something most folks don't think about, is the more debt you have, the higher stock and real estate prices go. Debt to GDP in the economy was 125% in 1980. It's 260% now. Net wealth, household net wealth to GDP was 350% in 1980, it's 600% now. Debt rising causes asset prices to go up and therefore causes wealth to go up. But, and here's the punchline, if the already wealthy own most of those assets, they get the disproportionate benefit of that. So as that happens, inequality widens. That's just math.
1: You hear the term that cash is king and then you also hear the term that cash is trash. Maybe cash is, is more trash than cash is king of those two terms being correct? Let's just put it all in perspective. The
0: ho- household net worth,
1: after subtracting debt,
0: is about $150 trillion. The amount of deposits... And currency in the United States, last time I looked, was around $20 trillion. We all love cash. I love cash. I assume you love cash. Nobody does like cash. But relative to other assets, it's a smaller component of household wealth. Stocks and real estate values
1: both dwarf cash in size. Since all money is created by debt, if hypothetically every person paid off their loan at the exact same time, does that mean that we'd have no money in the system then? That's exactly what it means. And by the way, that's real close to what
0: happened in the Great Depression. And that's the reason the Great Depression was so horrifying. I think I'd have to go check my notes, but we got this data, but I think that Bank debt was paid down by 25% in a period of less than three years, from 1930 to 1933. It just doesn't happen today. In the cataclysmic 08 crisis, loan balances went down by 2%. In the Great Depression, they went down by 25%. There's no similarity between those two things. That's why
1: the Great Depression was so, so deep and hard and cruel. So, Richard, given your insights into the relationship between money and debt, can you envision a future scenario where we have a global financial and economic system where money is not predominantly based on debt? (laughs) You know,
0: I study monetary systems going back several centuries. And I can't find it. Well, a lot of folks say, let's get rid of fractional banking, as you said early in the show, and let's do this and let's do that. Debts necessary. And back in the early 1700s in the U.S. when there were not banks, first bank in the United States was not chartered till 1781 to help finance the war, by the way. So we operated for decades without banks. Well, we had to resort to all sorts of other mechanisms, which all essentially boiled down to one form of debt or the other. The biggest of which in the trading, you know, in the great Atlantic Triangle of Trade, were things called bills of exchange. And bills of exchange operated essentially like money. They were used to pay for supplies, but then the entity that got paid by a bill of exchange could use that bill of exchange as a form of money to buy something from somebody else or to invest in something. So it's like the comedy routine where you close one drawer and another one pops open. If we got rid of all debt and money, one of two things would happen. The economy would collapse to subsistence level or more likely, there would be other forms of debt
1: that would emerge to replace the ones that we had banned it. With the growing interest in Central Bank Digital Currencies, or CBDCs, do you believe the United States is likely to implement its own CBDC? And what's the potential benefit and challenges of CBDCs?
0: We'll probably be a little slow to the party on Central Bank Digital Currency. The country that's moving them the fastest, I believe, is China. And China's doing it for a very specific reason. They want to control everything. And if their central bank has a digital currency, that means they'll know everything that their citizens are doing, everything they're spending money on, and they'll be able to do you know, what China, you, you have to imagine, wants to do, and that's to be able to meddle and interfere in what people can and can't use their money for. And they'll either encourage certain kinds or block certain kinds or what have you for a central bank to have a digital currency can easily morph into a form of control. And the U.S. is not like China in that regard. There's a lot of folks in Congress that will spend their lives trying to prevent the government from interfering. If we do do that, it'll probably be just kind of a backbone, the Fed bills for private banks for banks to use. And so you would get the Fed's central bank digital currency system in kind of a private label form through your local bank. That's the way I would expect it happen. But by the way, I don't think it'll be terribly different from systems we already have, like credit cards and ACH and other things like that. It'll just be improved, there'll be immediate settlement, there'll be bells and whistles around it that make it easier and better to use. It's not gonna be earth changing.
1: And what's your thoughts on Bitcoin?
0: There's plenty of room in the world for multiple forms of currency. As I said early in the show, the United States did not have an official currency from 1787 to 1861, and we did just fine. Banks issued currency. If you went and got a loan at the Bank of North America in 1782, you walked out with some bills that said Bank of North America on the top. So banks supplied all the currency in the country for many decades. And then the United States and the Federal Reserve kind of stepped in and took that role away from them. But having multiple currencies is not unusual. We also see this in other countries around the world. Cuba has two currencies today. Not because they want to, just because the citizens don't trust the government's currency that much. China had a couple of forms of currency for a while. If you go back in history, you find the term money changer in the Bible. It's not because... There was a uniform currency. They had a lot of things going on. So it doesn't bother me at all to think of a world that has multiple ways, probably bothers the central bankers, certainly doesn't bother me. But having said all that, I think there there was and continues to be a little bit of a naivete around things like Bitcoin per se. Those folks push their values up very high to levels which really don't have economic basis i would say if you're doing bitcoin buyer beware because it's can go up and get can go down and it's just like going to las vegas you know
1: richard vague the author of the paradox of debt a new path to prosperity without crisis richard where can people Buy your book, find your book. It's certainly on Amazon
0: and Barnes and & Noble and the like. We also have our own website, which is paradoxofdebt.com. If you like macroeconomics and you want to understand more about the world, we'd love to have you buy the book. This is my fifth book, and I'm working on my sixth
1: one. Richard, you are also managing partner at Gabriel Investments, which is a early-stage venture capital company. What are some exciting things that you see on the horizon that excite you and that will be big and that we'll be hearing about the next 10 years? These are not things
0: I invest in, but I'm very close to a university research in medicine. And so that's one of the areas that we just talked about briefly where the breakthroughs are incredible. And diseases that we didn't think there was any chance of curing, I think, in the next 10 or 20 years are going to be easily cured
1: the breakthroughs are just too powerful. Give us your final thought, whether it's on the book or one of your other books or the upcoming book. What do you want to leave the audience with? The
0: simple message and the paradox of debt really has to do with the importance of private sector debt versus government debt, even though you, you almost never hear about anything but government debt. It all, we also talk extensively about how it's debt that creates wealth as well as the inequality equation that you and I just talked about. If you want to really understand the stories you read in the newspaper, the things you hear on the radio and the television, our book is one that you need to read. It's almost, somebody almost compared, I hate to use the word textbook because all my textbooks were boring, but it really is a comprehensive look at the seven largest economies in the world that constitute 65% of world GDP. And it gives you a framework for understanding all the things you're going to be encountering in addition to the, your own personal investment decisions. So we we strongly recommend it for those who
1: like numbers and want to understand the world. And you kind of mentioned, Richard, that you're currently writing your sixth book. I was reading a review, actually, of your book, The Paradox of Debt, and it was written by Stephen Keane, the famous economist. And he mentioned in there that you two were collaborating on a book. So is your sixth book, actually, is Stephen King? Is that what's going on here? Steve is a dear friend and mentor, and
0: I adore him. We haven't yet started on this, but every time I see him, he mentions that. Mine is a history book, this time go around. I'm writing a book on the first banker in the United States to really comment on the creation of America's financial system. And not only that, but really, you know, how the American system general, the political system evolved.
1: Well, I, I do like Stephen Keen, so I hope that you guys can collaborate. I just want to thank you, Richard Vague, for joining us, spending an hour of your very valuable time to join us on El Podcast and talk about your book, The Paradox of Debt. So thank you so much. Thanks. It's been an honor to be with you. My, My dear friends, friends that, that is, is it for this, this episode of, of L Podcast. L Podcast. Once, Once again, if, again, if you're, you're not, not yet subscribed, subscribed Please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get
0: your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts
1: for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.